basically looking through three factors. So the last church that we did, they came to us and said, we'd like you to help us acquire a building. We don't know how to do it. And I said, you know, we can, the first thing you have to do is stop acting fully like a church and start acting a little bit more like a developer. And they're like, well, we want to walk by faith. And I go, I get that. So here's what we're going to do. If you act a little bit more like a developer, I will try to act a little bit more like a A great book can totally challenge your conventional thinking and change your life for good. However, some of us just don't have the luxury of time of sitting down to read a book. But there are some instances in which we do have dead time. And these are perfect times to learn. So we can learn while driving instead of jamming to the same music on the radio. Or maybe at the gym. Well, now you can. Dwelling has partnered with Amazon's Audible to give you, the Dwell listeners, a free book. Yes, a free book. So all you have to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash dwelling and download your free book. This will also be in the show notes. You can click on the link. And if you don't have a book in mind and you say, Ola, I don't actually know where to start with. Well, awesome, because I can tell you one to start with today. It's a quintessential classic. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So download Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that would basically just take your mind on a different spin. Of course, I'm always open to hear um, from our Dwell listeners. So email me at ola at dwelling.com. And then feel free to also give us a, a rating and review. This really helps us to rank better in iTunes. I can't wait to hear from you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us on The Dwelling Show. I'm your host, Ola Dantes. I've got the amazing Scott Crone with us today. Hey, Scott, how are you doing? Good morning. Thanks for having me, Ola. I appreciate the opportunity to speak. No, my, my pleasure, my pleasure. So, Scott, you've got a lot going on, um, but I'm sure you can do a way better job than I can. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about who Scott is and kind of what you've been doing lately? Well, those are two different questions. So <laughs> what, what, who am I? Um, I'm just a normal guy. But um, I, I enjoy trying to mo- make the most out of life. That's, that's my primary focus. And so whatever I try to do, I try to do fully and uh, to do it to the best and uh, enjoy the process. So that, that's a little bit about myself. Um, what we're working on right now is we're, we're, we set out a few years ago on a five-year plan of uh, creating 10 conversions of uh, urban un- underperforming distressed properties and converting them into self-storage. And so we're on that journey right now of, of completing that five-year goal. Very fascinating. Um, <laughs> so we definitely want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, very, very fascinating. Of course, self-storage is one of the asset classes that is doing pretty well during this pandemic. Um, not to, you know, anyone's surprised, but way before you even went into converting, you know, assets into self-storage, what were you doing before? And what was kind of the impetus to, to move into real estate investing? And can you just kind of share that story of how you kind of got started um, in the real estate investing space? Well, I began when uh, I was getting my master's in architecture. My professor, who I was is the TA for him, he, uh, he owned a real estate development company, which also did architecture and construction. And my master's thesis was a 400 unit uh, multifamily mixed use project on 50 acres. And so my background was really in the multifamily world. And so I worked on that project 
while in school and once I graduated from school with him and then a couple other projects. We also did condo conversions from apartments into condos. So we, were, we were managing apartments at that time. So my background was really in the multifamily world. And then in 98, I started Coda and we focused on residential. So our first project was a single family house. We, we bought a property, tore it down, uh, built a new one and, and sold it. And so that's how we began Coda back in 1998. <clears throat> and from that point forward, we began working on just different single family or multi-family um, mixed use, just a wide range of products. Um, we began also uh, working with different churches and we, we you know, have now done five churches or worked with five different churches. And you know, everything changed when the crash came in 08, 09. And then in 13, I had a client, I was coaching real estate and he wanted to find a distressed self-storage and I, and I couldn't find a distressed self-storage. But I always told him, I said, you know, the real money in real estate is not in necessarily buying something and just holding it, but it's also in development. So when you, when you change the program of something, you're, you're increasing the value as well as the cash flow. And that's where the real valuation comes in with, within real estate. And so um, we came across a building that was going to be for an, another client and it turned out we couldn't do it. But I, I you know, suggested or offered it up to him and he brought his team in to assess the, the, the feasibility and the viability of this project being self-storage. And they said, well, it's perfect, but we don't have anyone to develop it or do the entitlements. And so well, we can do that. And so that's how I got into self-storage in 2013. Fascinating as well. Yeah. So you, I'm kind of getting the sense of like, even though you might not have, you know, kind of the full you know, broad knowledge of, of a particular asset class, when you get an opportunity, you just don't say, no, we don't do that. You kind of go, well, let me take a look at that. We might be able to help you. And you kind of go and understand the asset class because you have a, a pretty range, um, you know, level of, of knowledge from different asset classes. So I really, I think, is that kind of correct? Well, we've, we've developed that, yes. But I mean, ultimately, you know, when I look at it from a development point of view, there's, there's not a whole lot of distinctions in terms of the processes that we have to go through. Um, you know, there are things we have to learn specifically that are different between, for instance, you know, in a self-storage locker is a much more simplified, you know, apartment. It's a, it's an apartment without toilets and a kitchen, but you still have to understand what are the requirements for that blocks, you know, in terms of what is the best way to go about the efficient way to do it. And so there, there are ways in which we've improved, we've learned, we've grown during since 2013 and how we do it. And we've become more efficient, certainly, just as the same way we became more efficient in building single family homes or condominiums or townhomes. So I read a book, How Developers Think. Uh, I don't know if mm -hmm. you've seen that book. And he talked about how, you know, I consider myself a real developer as well, but how developers come from kind of different um, disciplines, right? You know, from kind of different backgrounds. But for you, you actually studied architecture, right? So that's kind of like an interesting way to become a developer, right? So my question to you is, do you think your architectural degree actually helped, you know, as you, you know, as you were working on your development projects? Oh, absolutely. Um, not just my architectural degree, but my construction background. So my, my background is really, you know, if I go back and look at it, it you know, I have a, a bachelor's degree in history. So, you know, how does a, a bachelor's degree in history become, get a master's degree in architecture, then then becomes, you know, a real estate developer. But, you know, without a doubt, 
when, when I'm looking at a project, when I'm assessing a building, I'm not looking at it through one lens. I'm, I'm looking at it from, you know, a financial point of view, a developer point of view, like how are we going to change this program? How are we going to increase the revenue or the performance of this project? I'm looking at it architecturally in terms of like, how are we physically going to be able to accomplish this? What's the space that we're going to be able to do? And then from a construction point of view, like what's this going to cost? And, and again, how are we physically going to be able to do that? And will the design be compromised by the construction? And so I'm, I'm really looking through three factors. So the last church that we did, they came to us and said, we'd like you to help us acquire a building. We don't know how to do it. And I said, you know, we can, the first thing you have to do is stop acting fully like a church and start acting a little bit more like a developer. And they're like, well, we want to walk by faith. And I go, I get that. So here's what we're going to do. If you act a little bit more like a developer, I will try to act a little bit more like a church and, and have, you know, I am a Christian, but, you know, walk more in faith that this process will happen versus, you know, a developer is always in control and, uh, or tries to be in control, I should say, or thinks that they're in control more importantly. So I said, if, if we both agree to become a little bit more like the other, can we get this thing done? And they, they said, yeah, that makes sense. So I said, the first thing you do is make multiple offers. You got to, you got to find multiple properties and make multiple offers because what's happening, you know, you've been trying to get a church for 20 years and that you pursue it and it goes down this path for a year and a half and then it falls apart and you don't get it. And then you start the process over again. So the first thing is, let's just make multiple offers. Let's, let's explore three or four or five different opportunities at the same time and see where we're led to go. Let's just see how the process works. And so we helped them acquire this building. We entitled it. We got them the financing. We, got, we did the de design for them. We went with the city officials. We got it zoned. We built it for them. And then, you know, they're now worshiping there. And it's phenomenal to see the fact that after 20 years, they're, they're in their building. And, you know, they had a big celebration. They brought in a bishop from Rwanda, actually the archbishop from Rwanda, to help consecrate the building. And it was just a very special time. But my point being is that we were able to do the process from A to Z for them because we have that experience of being a developer, you know, working on the design and then also working on the construction. So we, we, we mold all three of those together. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. A really good friend of mine actually does something similar in the UK. He actually gets, um, you know, buildings for churches, right? So dealing with pastors in the UK, you know, is very fascinating because he tells me all these stories like, you know, you have to act in faith, obviously, um, as well, like as you're dealing with them. So I can understand that dynamic and I've definitely, I'm definitely well aware of that. So that's, that's an interesting story. I do want to go back real quickly, um, kind of before we dig into this interview here, the Hoyt recession, right? Um, how did you weather that storm? Because some of us obviously, uh, you know, I went through it, but not as an investor. Um, but how did you weather that storm? And what did you guys do differently? And how did you come out of it, you know, somewhat unscathed? Well, I think everyone got scathed. Um, you know, the biggest thing is I, I, when the big short came out, I don't know if you remember that movie. I do. Um, I took my oldest daughter to it and we watched it and we walked out of the theater and she said, I can't believe people were doing that. And I said, I was doing that. <laughs> I said, we were all doing it. And I said, the biggest thing is the banks were being forced to do it. They were being forced to provide this lending because if they didn't do it, then they would be going out of business. So I said, everyone was taking advantage of it. 
But prior, prior to 08, 09, I don't remember if there was the internet bust. You know, there was the first, we did, had a first dip in the economy with the internet. And leading up to that, I was very attuned to Greenspan. And all Greenspan kept talking about was the internet um, tech bubble was going to burst. And he kept saying it. And he kept saying it. I'm like, why is this guy just trying to burst the internet tech bubble? You know, because I'm looking at my, my stock portfolio. It's going up. It's great. You know, and you, oh, I'm making money. You know, it was like the easiest <laughs> thing to do, right? You know, it was... You didn't have to try. You didn't have to understand it. You just had to say, here it is. And, you know, it would happen. And, you know, when I, be, when I began hearing him say that and then it crashed, you know, I didn't listen to him the first time. But then as the real estate bubble was ramping up, he kept predicting that there was going to be a crash. There was going to be a crash. And the last property that we bought during, before that cycle, I bought a property for 600, no, it was like, yeah, $600,000 dollars. We put 500 into it and I sold it for $1.65 million. And I only had $60,000 into the deal. So if you think about that rate of return, it was phenomenal. And he was saying that there's a crash coming, there's a crash coming and I sold it. I mean, it was originally listed for like one eight. And this is when things were selling above asking price. So the fact that I took $150,000 reduction on the price, I went to a local developer meeting and they were all criticizing me. They were all yelling at me that I was undercutting the market, you know, that I was, you know, you know, destroying the marketplace because I took a deduction and all this. And I said, look guys, I'm out, I'm, I'm done. You know, I, I'm, I'm not concerned about the next one. So I stopped buying. And then when the market crashed, we had two remaining properties that we were, we had and we sold them. We, we sold them. We didn't give a single property back to the bank, but my bank went under. And, you know, it's, it's now just starting to, it was bought out and then bought out, but you know, that bank no longer exists. And that was a bank that my grandfather and father with their die casting business, which they sold when I was in college, that was a long-term family relationship with that bank and, you know, just utterly gone. And so what was also leading up to that, and this is something I was very cognizant of when you were asking me about being a developer, Carpenters who had, I had hired, who had just started their carpentry company, who literally came to the United States, could almost not speak English. And I'm not criticizing immigrants because I believe in the American dream and, and a lot of our subcontractors are all that way. But my point is someone who came to the United States doesn't have a full understanding of the language, was a carpenter, now as a developer, is getting financing for two and a half, three million dollar homes. Um, and dentists, lawyers, everyone was trying to become my profession without any training. And that was my, that, that's my point, is people that didn't have the training in this were becoming developers of not just like a $150,000 home or a $500,000 home. I'm talking like two and three, four, five million dollar homes. And they were just popping up everywhere and people were overbidding for pricing. So when I'm looking at these factors, I'm listening to this, I'm saying, this is, this is not healthy. This is too aggressive. This is leading it's, itself to a crash. And so that's when I just stopped buying. And so the same thing when I sold off all my apartments, you know, I, I saw the cap compression and I figured like, there's not going to be a better time. I'm going to get out. And that's why I've been focusing on self-storage because there was too much cap compression within the apartment market. So in each of these cases, when I'm looking at it as a developer, I'm looking at what's happening in the marketplace and where are there inefficiencies that I can take advantage of. And one of the things that we focused on was 
there are not people really developing self-storage or converting these things. And I can do it at 60% below the cost of a new construction. So I was like, why not go into this market? Fascinating. So I think that's a great segue into self-storage. Obviously, I'm a big fan of multifamily, um, but now kind of into development as well. Um, but I want you to talk a little bit more about kind of like when you say conversion of self-storage. So kind of go through, I guess, a, a few things or mind-blowing facts about self-storage investing because it's, it's kind of new for most listeners, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, as I mentioned, think of it as an apartments without toilets. So it's the most, it's the most simplistic apartment building you could possibly come up with. It's corrugated metal with a wire mesh top. We're buying a big old commercial building that's either underutilized or empty. So for instance, we just bought a, a building in Dayton that had been empty for 30 years. And there's a lot of development going on around it, but they can't develop that one because it doesn't have any parking. So no, no residential multifamily person could come in and develop this thing because they couldn't fulfill the parking requirement. Self-storage, we, we need four or five parking spaces. That, that's all. In, in our buildings, people actually drive into our buildings, open up their trunk, the garage door comes down, and they can unload their, build, their stuff. Totally safe, dry, warm, secure, everything. You know, it's, it's totally safe. So in that sense, it's a very simplistic model. You know, when we, when we were... When I was developing multifamily, it was all based around the parking. Everyone thinks that you start at the top and you develop the condominiums down. We would actually start with a parking structure and then figure out how many condos we could have up above it based upon the parking requirements. That was the whole model. That was the first thing that I learned when in designing uh, multifamily. And so we, we look at it differently from that perspective. So what, I, what we're coming in is seeing like, if I, I'm looking at the demographics, I'm studying the marketplace, I'm seeing the predictability patterns of the buying patterns of the market. And then where does this property fit within that relationship and what type of product do I have to provide? Is it more affluent, less affluent because that dictates the size of the units, the size of the units then dictates the revenue, which then takes, dictates the value, all those sorts of things. And we work it backwards. The other thing I really like about it is, in multifamily, you would agree that your operational costs are averaging between 50 and 55% of your NOI. Absolutely. Or your gross revenue, I should say. Ours is 35%. We don't have the maintenance, especially with a, with a new building that we put together. You know, we have all new roofs, all new HVAC, all new lighting, but we don't have the demand on the building. You know, if we get four people in our building a day, that's a lot of people. So I don't have the wear and tear. I don't have it. And my cost factor is about 10% of what multifamily is. So I can get like 800 rental units and I'll, my cost will be under $8 million, seven, $8 million. You know, when we did uh, 400 units, it was a hundred million dollars in sales. So think about the cost perspective, you know, my, I can take a building, you know, seven or $8 million in cost and it'll be worth over $10 million because of the valuation of the income. And so those are the things that I looked at and the predictability of it. And that's how we determine what we're going to do. And, um, and more importantly, why we're going to do it. Wow. It's so fascinating. It is so fascinating. So you're doing, you know, a lot of this, you know, self-storage, you know, we kind of, I'm kind of zooming into the future. Yeah. I mean, you did a bunch of development, you did multifamily assets. Now you're doing self-storage. 
I mean, where do you kind of see the future going for, you know, coder management or yourself? What are you thinking of for, for the future here? And how are you trying to kind of get, um, you know, more out of what you're doing right now? Well, the, the bigger thing, you know, my mentor, you know, always talked to me about was not just thinking transactionally or, you know, vertically, but diagonally, which is transformationally. So we're always looking to say, okay, how can we develop and grow beyond what we're trying to do? And one of his favorite expressions is don't think outside the box, throw the box out the window. And so I had that one before. <laughs> so what we began doing is we began, that's why we came up with the five-year plan. And the idea was that if we had different assets, we could, we could assemble a platform or a portfolio of assets, which would then increase our ability to sell it at a greater discount in the cap rate. And so we get greater compression. And so that's why we began on this before I was very transactional thinking like, one deal to the next and not thinking like it, especially when you're not, when we're just doing design build, when, you know, you're always looking for the next customer, but then, you know, the vertical thinking would be like, well, if I get passive income, that will offset it. Okay. Well, you know, horizontals thinking transactionally, I need this deal. I need this deal. Passive income is like, well, if I get passive income, then I won't have to, you know, I don't have to work as hard. Transformationally is like, how am I building generational wealth? And that's where we're saying, okay, we're going to develop this portfolio to not just sell an asset, but if we get a, you know, a group of assets together, then we will be able to get a better pricing for all of them. And so that's why we began platform one, platform two, and now we're on platform three. Each platform has three properties. And one of the reasons why we do that is we want to show our investors that this is not a one-off. You know, this is an intentional plan. This is a marketing concept that we came up with that says, hey, we're starting here, we're gonna end here, and this shows you where we are through the process. And so right now, we're looking at platform three, Floyd. So that's our second property in the third platform. Once we get the third one, then we'll start platform four. And then people will you know, now see, hmm, these guys have been doing it a while. These guys you know, know what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Because it, otherwise, if you just say, hey, we're doing a self-storage facility, well, how many have you done? Now we can say, well, we're on our third platform. You know, these are the other assets in the portfolio and so on and so forth. Wow. Scott, fascinating stuff. Um, this is like really, really interesting. Uh, I wish I could keep going on, but we're definitely, definitely dwelling into the quick rounds. These are going to be quick questions, quick answers. Okay. You ready, sir? I am. Oh, All right. <laughs> just like running back, I got to get it right here. <laughs> uh, first question. What makes you, Scott, unique? What is that differentiating factor that separates you from the next guy or the next girl? Well, I think we talked about it a little bit already, the fact that I, I do bring not just the developer side of it, but the architectural you know, background to it, as well as the construction management, that we do all three things. Um, I think we're one of the few companies, if not, you know, I like to pride ourselves on the only company that does all three of these things in this space. And so for us, that's our differentiation within the marketplace. Awesome. Next question. What was the last book that you read? What was the one thing you picked up from that book? Well, I'm reading it right now. It's called The Invitation to Journey. In fact, right before you were running, but I was reading. And uh, so... Um, just so you know, just so you know, I was reading too. I'm, I'm reading this book right now. Before I ran, before I ran. So it's read and then run. <laughs> See, I was paddleboarding and then reading. You were reading and then running. So we, you know, we both get them both in, right? Um, 
But what I like about the book is it's a it's about life as a journey. It's about transformation and a journey. And you know, so much we're in the instant gratification culture. And you know, that's what we say to our investors. Hey, look, this is not um, a microwavable investment. This is an investment that's going to take time to develop and marinate. It's going to take three to five years in order to to get to this full valuation of this. And I think that's like life. You know, so often we just want the instant stuff, but not really working on the deep down stuff that really creates transformation. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, I talk about this a, a ton. Obviously, I'm a millennia and, you know, our generation, especially in the social media generation, is just the instant gratification is just um, pervasive, frankly. So, yeah, I, I can totally relate. Um, final question. You've got, obviously, Coda. You've got all your units. You're doing a ton. You're super busy. What do you do for fun? <laughs> well, you know, we were, we were very blessed um, you know, COVID was a very hard time, but I will say that we were also very blessed during that time. One, um, you know, my kids all came back home. One is still living here, but the other two, one was uh, off at college, the other one was playing junior hockey. And obviously everything got shut down. So we chose to do, we came up with an idea that every night someone in the family had to come up with a new and unique idea for us to do as a family together. And so we did a whole range of different things. In fact, I bought like the Lego Saturn, um, the Saturn nine rocket that went to the moon, the first one that went to the moon, you know, so we spent a week building this rocket because uh, we all had to take turns building it. You know, we just couldn't have one person do it. And, um, but you know, I enjoy sports. I enjoy activities. I enjoy skiing. I play hockey. But this summer, with with COVID, our beach was stayed open, and so I spent the entire summer at our beach, which is only a couple blocks away with our family. And we, you know, we were paddleboarding, we were sailing, we were jet skiing, we were doing different things, and it was just a blessing to be able to get away, be down there, not have to worry about social distancing. Granted, there not a, there weren't a lot of people out there um, because we're where our boat is and stuff like that but we could take advantage of that and we had an awesome summer and and that's what really re rejuvenates me yeah i mean and that's the, that's another really good point you've raised it's really trying to make a you know right trying to take advantage of a bad situation is kind of how covid could be translated right you know we have a, exactly. our family together and really just making making the best of it thanks for sharing that um if there's somebody listening say hey i really like scott maybe then the illinois you know area or just maybe anywhere in the country and you just want to reach out and connect with you what is the best place people can reach out and get to know you better well first of all i want to say thank you again for having us so what I'd like to offer your listeners is if anybody comes across an opportunity where they think it, it might be an interesting place or a building for self-storage, if they type in at our website, info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com, and they put the name of this podcast or your name, Ola, on it in the info bar when they go to codamg.com, if you go contact us. We will, we will not only send them a, um, a feasibility study on how we evaluate um, a building or location, excuse me, but we'll also be one to jump on the call with them for an hour and discuss it. You know, goes through the pros and cons of that building, that location and uh, help them determine. I mean, I, this, this industry is small enough where we're not gonna steal anyone's property. If you want us to sign a, a non-circumvent, non-disclosure, we'll be happy to do that, but that's not our intention of doing it. We just want to be able to help people out and understand the marketplace. Oh, really appreciate that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate your time.
Thank you. You may have heard the phrase, there are a thousand ways to make a thousand dollars in real estate. Well, now you can actually tune into the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast with over a thousand, believe it, or a thousand podcasts and still going. The best real estate investing advice ever show is hosted by a very good friend of mine, Joe Fellers. Joe talks to influential thought leaders. We share the best advice ever with none of the fluff. You've got to check this stuff out. So listen and subscribe at bestevershow.com. That's bestevershow.com.